when something like this happens, you can be 99% certain that it wasn't just a general carpet bombing attack type. It was extremely specific and very, very targeted. Attackers only have to be right once, and a defender has to be right all the time. So they've essentially been given chopsticks to go take part in a gunfight. And, you know, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's been described as the worst cyber attack to ever occur in Ireland, with the health system crippled and thousands of patients' confidential records compromised. As a HSE blue team work around the clock to reopen systems bit by bit, the cost of the damage is still unknown. Wizard Spider, the group behind the attack, are known to be based in Russia with an estimated 80 members. But who are this criminal group and how do they continue to operate in the shadows? Today, I'm talking to Rob Feeney, a senior cybersecurity consultant who works as a so-called white hat hacker. In other words, he's one of the good guys. He tells me about the growing threat of cyber crime gangs and how their high IQ foot soldiers are often innocently groomed into dark net plots. And he says Ireland needs to fight back by using its brain power and upping our defences. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. You were explaining to me that, and this was a, a, a word I hadn't heard before, but that you're a white hat hacker. So in other words, you're, you're a, like in, in basic terms, there's in, in all areas of life, there's goodies and there's baddies. And you're one of the goodies when it comes to this sort of um, cyber hacking. So explain to me what, what, what you do and... Um, you know, what, what is a red team? Sure. So, like, I guess for normal everyday people, you know, there's a lot of technical words and, and jargon that's been thrown around at them for the last couple of weeks. Probably don't understand a lot of it, but there's some clear distinctions and definitions that have to be made so that people better understand what's being said. So the first thing is um, there's typically a division between, as you mentioned, people who do do good and people who do bad. So in the world of cybersecurity, there is white hat hackers, and they're people who learn the tricks of the trade and use them to help protect their own organizations. Or like myself as a consultant, we get hired by particular organizations to help protect them. And then you have black hat hackers. And they're people who are nefarious in their intentions, they're malicious, and they use their skills for what we would uh, objectively deem as bad. So people would target individuals online you know, they would hack them, uh, look for money, try and scan their credit card details, things like this. So they're known as black hat hackers. And then sometimes you get people who uh, have no morals and they try play both sides. And they are known as grey hat hackers. So they switch hats. They put white hat on during their, their nine to five. But then in the evenings or at weekends, they're black hats. And they, they do things to, to try and make a bit of extra cash or just to, uh, you know, feed, feed their own uh, curiosity. Mm. You all kind of have the same skill sets. Ultimately, though, you you know how to make your way around uh, 
you know, what what would be total and utter double dutch to most of us. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the only clear distinction between the two groups is their intentions and their their moral compass, really. Mm. Uh, we use the same mm. techniques. And I suppose we, we sort of have to. Um, you know, the black hats are usually uh, extremely innovative and they have no rules. Uh, but you have to use the same techniques when you're testing uh, companies and infrastructure belonging to certain organizations because they're trying to defend themselves from the black hats. So you have to use the same techniques. So you do learn the same skills. Um, but yeah, the clear distinction is the the moral compass and the, the ethics associated with the individual or group in question. In a way, it's kind of the cyber version of what goes on between organized crime and legitimate businesses because... Um, some people are playing by the rules, paying their taxes and uh, adhering to the legislation in the various territories they work in, while organised criminals are sort of doing the same thing, but they're, they're, they're not following any rules and they're, you know, it's, it's not an even playing field, is it? Um, which brings us to, you were explaining to me the difference between red teams and blue teams. And, and I suppose this, this is really at the core of what's going on in the HSE at the moment. Yes. So uh, there's a couple of different niche areas of specialization within the world of cybersecurity itself. Uh, for example, you have governance and compliance. So this is specifically related to regulation. So where your listeners could uh, relate to that in real life would be in the last couple of years, EU have released the GDPR. Uh, regulation, which which is to do with data protection and privacy. Or another example would be something known as PCI compliance, which is payment card industry. So most online stores like Amazon and eBay would have to be compliant with this. So that's a set standard, a set technical standard that they have to meet um, to to be deemed applicable or acceptable to to take payments online. Me personally, I work in the domain of risk assessment and specifically, and as you just mentioned, what's known as a red team. There's also a blue team, which we'll speak about later with regards to the response to the HSE hack. But uh, to give you a better understanding of red teaming, it's the practice of obtaining explicit authorization and permission from an organization to actively attack them. So red teamers are white hat hackers who are hired by a company to try and find security flaws and gaps within a given system. And you do that with the aiming, the aim of finding them before somebody who is malicious in their intentions does. Uh, so like if you think of it like I like to imagine it as a home security system. If I'm concerned about my, my security in my home, you know, I might get a dog, I might get strong doors, decent locks, uh, an alarm system, maybe a phone watch or something like that. So when you've put pieced all that together, you want to see if it actually works in reality. So you would hire a burglar to try and break into the house. But they're a good burglar. They're a white hat burglar. So what they do is they try and break in. They try and see if they can get past all those defenses and get into the safe room. And then if they do, the most important thing that they do is they don't take anything, but they tell you how they did it. And more importantly, they tell you how to close the security gaps that they exploited. Uh, so that's you can stop somebody who would be more sinful in their intentions from doing the same in the future. So, you know, the key thing here is that they're specifically authorized to do it. They've been hired by the company to do it and uh, they're using their skills for good. But then, of course, on the other side of that, there's people out there who have these skills and use them for bad. And they're usually, you know, nation states, cyber gangs, online thieves, and they're the black hats. Yeah. So the black hats, this crew we've heard about, Wizard Spider, are the black hats in the in what's going on in the HSE. Um, you know, we seem to know bits about them. We know they're probably based in Russia. We know they have attacked 
other corporate entities before. Healthcare systems in the US have been mentioned and um, they're very highly competent. Um, But, you know, what more do we know about them as human beings? Like, do we have any idea? None of them. I've just been looking around uh, doing a little bit of research myself and I can't find one individual who's been identified and brought before the courts. Now, that is unusual when it comes to a criminal enterprise because usually you can find you can find one individual and then you can sort of go, OK, well, that's the grouping they're in. But they seem to be invisible ghosts that are lurking somewhere in Russia. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously in the world of cybercrime, Wizard Spider are, are very well known about. Absolutely. There's a, there's a number of things that are known about them. And I suppose you can sort of read between the lines uh, and, and draw your own conclusions from certain pieces of information. So according to Europol and FBI, they're a group of around individ- 80 individuals, as you mentioned, who reside in St. Petersburg. So to date, there hasn't been any known attacks by that group against Russian infrastructure. Um, which would lead you to draw a particular conclusion by itself. Um, they are likely to be very, very technical individuals. They may not know each other even. You know, the world of the internet and cybersecurity, you can become anonymous very easily. So it's quite easy in some circumstances to, to hide your true identity. So they may not actually even know each other in real life. They may just know each other as particular online handles, who they work with and who they uh, bounce ideas off and who they send code to, who they get input input from. So it's possible that they, they don't even know who each other are. But that would, that would mean that there's likely a, a key core group that would be pulling the strings behind the scenes. So they would be in charge of the the attack campaigns. But, uh, you know, it's also possible that the individuals in the group may not even know that they're working for a criminal enterprise. Mm. They could easily be lured into being hired on a temporary basis to fix one particular technical problem. And then when they do that, their job's done. Okay, talk to you later. You got paid. See you you again. So it's very easy for them to remain anonymous. They're feeling pretty bulletproof at the moment, despite the fact that the focus of certainly Ireland, the guards, we know the FBI are helping Europol. They're not feeling too scared at the moment. Presumably they're they're feeling that they have there's that the law, the law has no chance of catching up with them. Um, I would say they probably have a high level of confidence that they won't be found or if they're if their identity is revealed that they won't come to any sort of uh, punishment. And I suppose if you look at where they're operating from, and it's a common trend between that group and other groups, they tend to reside in states that wouldn't be on the best of terms with uh, certain Western nations and the Western nations' allies. And they also reside in geographical locations that would have less strict regulation around, uh, you know, online privacy and, uh, you know, anonymity laws. So there's... A lot of services you can use online where you can create a server for within five minutes and you can place it in, in the likes of Russia or China or somewhere like this. And hackers use these services to, to remain anonymous so that they, the servers can't be tracked back to them. So it's to do with regulation and, and privacy and law. Uh, but yeah, they'll be, they'll be feeling very confident that if they do even get found out that once they don't leave Russia, that you know they won't, uh, they won't be brought to justice unless they're 
in Europe somewhere and they're caught while they're in Europe or in one of the Western nation allies states. And we can probably assume that at the very top of that ladder, at the top of that pyramid, the people who are actually making the real money and directing the operations are a little bit like the drug barons. They're the guys who don't have their hands on the laptop keyboards. So they have employed these probably series of, uh, you know, highly intelligent and uh, very um, computer literate people to do their dirty work for them. Absolutely. Um, you know, they would be very disconnected from the, the daily operations. It's hard to know exactly um, who the type of person behind this would be because some of these uh, threat actors, as they're known in the industry, could be sponsored by nation states or they could be criminal gangs that sort of get a free pass from the state that they're residing in because they don't hack that state or because the enemy of my enemy is my friend type attitude. Uh, so there's sometimes a, a symbiotic relationship between the groups that the government of the state that they're in don't go after them as long as they don't hack the government themselves or they're hacking the same targets. Or they could be sharing their spoils. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because there's there was recently there was a, a gentleman known as Hush Puppy in the online world uh, who is a Nigerian national who was... Um, arrested for being the head of a massive online crime syndicate. And he was living in uh, luxury and he was hiring people in a different nation to, to carry out the work. And then he was taking advantage of the spoils. It's funny, I've spoken to a number of individuals over my years as a, as a crime journalist who would be fundamentally decent moral people and they would have been plucked from uh, the internet, shall we say, they would have been, they would have been high-functioning, um, literate pe com people computer-wise, and they would have been plucked to work within criminal organisations. And I have to say, in, in, in the occasions of the people I've spoken to, they didn't realise who they were going working for until they were in it. And then they found it very difficult to come out of it and um, very, very difficult to extricate themselves. Much in the same way that we speak about young kids being groomed into drug gangs. They've done something and they don't know how to get out. They don't know who to reach out to. A lot of the times, the, the, the sort of heads of these criminal organisations they're working for, and they, they do have, you know, cyber units and IT departments, these criminal gangs, in the same way normal corporate companies have. Um, but they will always claim sometimes true, sometimes not, that they have, you know, relationships with the police, all this kind of thing. So people just don't know how to get out, who to reach out to, who they can safely speak to. Now, on, on the occasions, the people I've been speaking to did get out and they are doing, they're using their large brains for good these days. <laughs> They've probably become a little bit more like you um, and they're working in the legitimate industry. But, it, you know, it is interesting that there are individuals possibly who were involved in this horrendous attack on the HSE, which is having such a massive knock-on effect uh, on people, ordinary people, but that they mightn't necessarily be um, be the criminal masterminds behind it. They're just, they're, they're being used 
Yeah, I think that's probably, you know, if you look at the general sort of stereotype of a hacker, right? You, the first thing you think of is somebody in a Guy Fawkes mask with a black hoodie in their room, in their in the box room in their mother's house, and they're very antisocial, right? So, like, yeah. just sometimes there's a little bit of truth to a stereotype. You know, the people who do this type of thing, they're usually really high IQ. So if you tested them and you did an IQ test with them, they'd probably score off the charts, so they would have high, high intelligence. But where, you know, there's high intelligence in a lot of people, there's also a severe lacking of emotional intelligence and social skills. So I can see how it would be very easy for somebody who would be not the most socially aware to get tricked by somebody who is more socially aware into committing something on behalf of them. And, you know, I suppose, you know, you mentioned there teenagers and, and young adults getting tricked into to working for criminal gangs and, and not realizing until it's too late. The principle in the cyber world, it, the principle is the same. It's just the medium of which the, the you know, the, the pain is delivered. Yeah. And the skill set is obviously slightly different. Where do they, speaking of skill set, where do a lot of these people learn their skill sets? You obviously did so in uh, with a college education, but... You were saying to me the other day that some of these people are self-taught. Absolutely. So I myself, I started out in college. Um, I did a, a general degree, managed to land a job in, in cybersecurity in a company in Dublin, and then went on to do my master's. So I very much took the formal, defined education route, followed along with uh, professional training and certifications. So there's loads of training you can take within the industry as a white hat um, to increase your technical abilities and, and and better your skills. For people who don't have access to to things like that, there's so much material out there on the web that uh, that can be used. You know, there's self-taught methods, there's experimentation, there's a lot of online training platforms that are designed to teach white hat professionals how to do their job better. But, you know, and increase their technical ability. But if that information is pieced together in the right manner, or the wrong manner, depending on your viewpoint, it can be used for nefarious means. And I guess it relates back to why red teamers try their best to emulate real-world threats. So we, we, we try to use our same, the same techniques, but I suppose a consequence of that is inevitably some people use it for bad. So Rob, from your own work and your own knowledge, and you've worked in teams that, that essentially have, have done this, this white hat work, how much time um, and investments do, can you sort of can you imagine was put into this HSE hack? Uh, it would have been certainly a period of months. So when something like this happened, it's uh, it's done by something that we call as a an APT, which is an advanced persistent threat. Uh, persistent being the keyword there because they never stop poking and prodding to see what they can use. So when something like this happens, you can be 99% certain that it wasn't just a, you know, a general carpet bombing attack type. It was extremely specific and very, very targeted. So that would have taken months. They would have built up profiles using publicly available information um, on the HSE. They likely would have, you know, explored social media sites to see what individuals work there and the layout of the department. There's a lot of information on the web that's publicly available that can be used uh, for bad once it's combined together. And I suppose it's sort of like uh, what we would call open source intelligence, open source being publicly available and then using it to, to, to do something bad. But, you know, they would have taken a long time to do this. It would have been targeted. And 
I suppose one of one of the things that they would have looked at that has been made publicly available in the last couple of weeks was the fact that the HSE were using uh, 46,000 Windows 7 computers, which had a particular end-of-life period. Now, it's not necessarily a problem in itself, and that information was made available to the public to keep them updated on where their taxpayer money was going. But it could be used uh, by somebody with malicious intentions, and they can say to themselves, okay, if we know that they're using this particular piece of technology, maybe we can craft a piece of malware that targets and takes advantage of this. So can you sort of guesstimate how many people would have been working on this? And, you know, are you talking 10, 20 people, 20 hackers? Are you talking somebody had to pay them all those months while they were working away? Well, the group itself are known to have about 80 people. Um, I would imagine, I would hazard a guess that they probably, uh, they probably would be working on multiple targets at one time. Um, but they would be crafting their their malware and their attack campaigns. I, know, I suppose it's it's hard to say, really. Um, it's a matter of investment versus possible outcome. But if they're if they're sponsored by some, if they're a group that are sponsored by somebody, they'll likely get uh, a, a salary, and then you know maybe, maybe they get a, a bonus if the if the ransomware pays off. You know, it could be incentivized exactly the way a corporate environment is. Yeah, more than likely is. Um, and obviously their big prize at the end of this was their hope that the um, HSE would pay up whatever their demands are. They've been very reluctant to uh, detail what it is they're demanding, but I think the general figure floating around is around 20 million. That would sound, you know, that would probably sound like something that would be uh, reasonable. I think we know that this Wizard Spider group did target the company Fatface yeah. and they got some money out of them. They got two million or something. Was that right? Yes, Rob? allegedly, yeah. Allegedly, right. Yeah. Okay, okay. But they did target them while they're trying to operate in the middle of a pandemic with no stores open and obviously their online sales are so important to them. You shut down a corporate business like that for a couple of weeks and you could you could kill them off altogether. The difference between, you know, attacking a private company and a government is that private company, as you correctly stated, it would be a business decision that, that would be, okay, if we're offline for two weeks and it costs us a million a week um, you know, and they're only demanding a million, we'll give them the million and we'll get back online. Uh, but I suppose when, when you're a government entity, you're, you're accountable to the taxpayer. So uh, with any type of ransom situation, you know, there's no guarantee that they'll give you the unlock the key to the kingdom once once you do pay. So it's a very, very strong dilemma to find yourself in. I don't envy anybody who's in the situation or actually actively dealing with uh, the HSE hack. But there's a lot of things that they have to consider. You know, there's no guarantee they'll they, they'll give you the keys to the kingdom again. There's no guarantee that they, they won't put a backdoor there so that they can just redo it again in a month's time when you think that you've cleaned everything up. Um, attackers only have to be right once and a, a defender has to be right all the time. So it's probably difficult for them to actually fully clean up the environment um, if they did pay the ransom. So it's a, it's a very difficult situation to be in. And also there's, there's the possibility if they do have cyber insurance that the claim might be rejected if they pay the ransom. So it's, if they do pay it, it sets a question, questionable precedent. But uh, yeah, I think they've maintained a position that they're not going to pay it. So 
funny you should mention that. I did read somewhere that one of the groupings was looking for money from a particular corporate entity and they said they didn't have it to pay and the 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 hackers said, well, actually, we've checked out your insurance policy and you do have it and this is how much you have. So we're only looking for this amount. Like, it's like kind of like they're just doing quite reasonable business there. Yeah. You know, they're only going after the insurance companies. They're not hurting the businesses. But, um, you know, look, this is, uh, you know, we know what's probably happening and what will happen when they don't pay. They're going to publish this information or, as you pointed out, they will sell it to the highest bid- bidder on the dark web. So what sort of people would be out there, you know, buying up that kind of this kind of stuff, m- patients' medical records on the dark web? Hopefully not the likes of insurance companies or banks or legitimate industries. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very valid concern. It depends entirely on the type of data itself that's, that has been stolen and would possibly be leaked. I suppose this will be revealed in the coming weeks once the investigators uh, to the HSC wrap up their investigation and finalise their report. It'll most certainly be a GDPR breach um, under under the new laws that were implemented from 2018. So the EU will be asking questions about that. The information itself could be valuable to other nation states. Um, You know, the original hackers might further sell the information to, to other criminal gangs on the dark web, dark web, and those gangs might use it to specifically target individuals. So, uh, for example, Facebook leak that happened a couple of months ago, where there was usernames and passwords and geographical locations released. If I'm a human uh, who reuses the same password across multiple platforms, and they look me up on, on LinkedIn, they might find that I work for a particular organization and that they might successfully get into that organization with my credentials that I used. So Jesus you're giving me the you're giving me the the frighteners here now on <laughs> one of those. Oh my goodness, right. If you look at like uh you know health data. So if if you're a more privacy orientated individual who would be concerned about a suggestion that you you mentioned which is very valid to do with the releasing of private health data. You know, how does that affect any sort of jobs you might get in the future if somebody looks you up and they see uh, particular things about you or if, if, you know, you're trying to renew your health insurance premium? And I think that's a valid concern because in 2020, a Finnish company called Vastamo, I hope I'm not buttering the pronouncing of that name, uh, they're a psychiatric patient hospital and they contained records of patients' uh, psychiatric diagnoses. And they were hacked and the information was released onto the web. So, you know, there's definitely valid concerns there when it comes comes to this. And uh, I think if you look at it from multiple angles, it's uh, it's scary whatever way you look at it. Yeah, I have to just sort of take this moment to apologise profusely to the guys in my own workplace who work in all this. I had to recently sit through a media house video about GDPR and I yawned my way through it and practically just, you know, was parallel on the floor by the end of it. (laughs) But I will... I will start taking, you know, heed and, and realise that this isn't just to bore me to tears, that there is a reason for all this and maybe we all need to take stock of it. Um, finally, Rob, how can Ireland defend itself going forward um, in this new world? And clearly that threat is growing of these cybercrime groups all the time. Yeah. So, you know, I'm looking at this from somebody who is sort of geographically removed and, you know, professionally separated from the country in itself. So the context I'm looking at it from is from the outside in. 
um, you know, their their personal opinions and observations that I would suggest uh, as a result of just my my experience. Um, but there's a number of suggestions that 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 I would make that I think would you know would help. You know, some people might debate me on them, which is perfectly acceptable. I think that's something that we should absolutely do. But you know, there's immediate things that we can do. So the first thing is funding and resources. So simply, it comes down to investment by the government into the national, uh, the, this, the national security of our, our state uh, bodies. So if you look at it, we have one of the best third-level education systems in Ireland. We have roughly between forty and fifty cyber security companies operating in Ireland. So we have the technical workers to do the work. We have the education system. We have the people uh, to do it. They just need the support, and there has been a lot of underinvestment in the area. So, for example, the National Centre for Cybersecurity, they only received 14 million euro over a period of 10 days or 10 years. Um, I would echo the concerns of other professionals in the industry. There was a former Deputy Director of Military Intelligence, Michael Murphy, spoke during the week about this being a massive wake-up call. We need a centralised agency to deal with stuff like this. So if you look at the UK, for example, the GCHQ, which is responsible for the state's cybersecurity. Now, of course, they have a much larger population and it's all relative, but they have about 6,000 employees. The National Cybersecurity Centre has between 20 and 50. So there is... A lot of room for improvement. Um, I don't think anybody should should you know uh, look to, to point fingers and blame anybody f- for this um, when it comes to the HSE itself, because the HSE can only they can only deal with the situation in a manner that they have to utilize the resources they've been given in the best in the best way they possibly can. And if they're not being given the right resources in terms of manpower, budget, um, and uh, you know accountability, then they're not going to be able to, to stand up to these threats. So they've essentially been given chopsticks to go take part in a gunfight. And, you know, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. But I also think that the second thing that we need to do is there has to be a shift in mindset and an evolution in the way we treat cybersecurity in Ireland. So at the moment, it's very compliance-driven. And that's a good thing because it means we're, we're meeting all the standards that are set out by governments, uh, the EU and by the industries that we're dealing with. But unfortunately, um, that standard is lesser, or I suppose, in some ways, not very applicable to real life uh, in certain circumstances or in in certain scenarios. So if you take, for example, the HSE hack, that was a really, really advanced uh, criminal gang or possibly a nation state. And the barriers to entry for criminal gangs are getting lower. So the tools that would have been used in this type of attack and the methods that would have been used are becoming really, really more publicly known. So it means the barriers to entry for somebody who's willing to do something like this uh, are, are, are getting easier to overcome. So the attacks are becoming easier to perpetrate, uh, which means that the states have to up their their security measures and their security programs. And it's essentially a cyber arms race between black hat hackers uh, and private companies and governments. And unfortunately, there's a lot of, you know, national services and small to medium enterprises that get caught in the middle. And it's very daunting for them to have to deal with something like this because it's an extra financial burden. Uh, Another thing I think we could do is have some form of... um, 
agreed upon standard, which goes beyond the scope of compliance. So the Irish government could possibly look into the uh, idea of creating an agency that oversees the security of all these entities, but holds them to a particular standard and makes sure that they have the financial investment to meet that standard. And that would have a sort of uh, a guarantee that they're, they're resilient to at least a certain number or different types of attacks. So in other words, we need to pump more funding into this end of yep. every business and government and be aware that, and also, Rob, these gangs, the more money they make, um, I'm just taking a parallel from sort of organized crime, the more powerful they become and the harder they are to fight because they have a war chest that exactly. perhaps private industry and government won't. So the sooner the better we sort of do invest and try and, and, and push back in this. Yeah. One other thing I'd like to add as well is like, mm. if you look at, let's say the, the civil service, for example, um, the defence forces and the, the Garda are very in tune with what's going on uh, in the cyber world. You know, they've got individual departments that deal with this type of thing. But I, I suppose if you look at the um, the lack of investment that has been made into the defence forces over the last decade, um, that's, that's publicly affecting even normal enlisted soldiers Um it's it's definitely reflected in the cybersecurity space of the defense forces and the guard as well because they work on set pay bands and their their salaries are predefined so when they go in and they they get trained up and they do their time it's very very difficult for for members of the defense forces and the guard to resist the allure of the private sector salaries so you know they have to do a little bit more to to give them the right tools to do the job and to ensure that there's retention and there's there's a, a minimal attrition risk to losing staff to the private sector. Because if we want to secure our national entities and bodies, we have to keep people in the civil service. Yeah, and keep them keep them interested in their in their jobs as well. well Rob Feeney, thank you very much for your time today and for explaining all that to us. And um, all I can say as I look out here on a very grey, rainy, wintry-looking Dublin is go and enjoy the sunshine in the <laughs> Middle East. I'm jealous. Cheers. Thank you very much for having me. Sundayworld.com. This is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent. <laughs>